Hi, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. As an executive coach and leadership strategist for over 20 years, I've also wanted to share the amazing insights and stories from my clients and other amazing people I know. Every episode, you will hear inspiring stories, insider tips, and practical ideas you can use during these unprecedented times. I'd also love your help spreading the word about this podcast. Tell someone you know about this episode or post about it on social media. I'd be grateful. If you love food, or if you're an entrepreneur, or if you care deeply about global social responsibility, but especially if you are passionate about all three, this episode is for you. My next guests are entrepreneurs, and in this conversation, you'll hear them talking about navigating a sudden loss of business and then an abrupt organic 5X growth tear, both due to the pandemic, how their initial core values continue to guide this growth, and how they rejected the Silicon Valley approach to growth. But perhaps most importantly, how they've built a healthy partnership based on values, talking about the pebbles every week, and capitalizing on their differences. We just want to build a big business, a business that has impact, that has influence, that sets a, a target for other businesses to try to achieve. So we think about every single day is how do we make this work more? Yeah. Make it work better for everybody. How do we continue to pay our partner farmers more? How do we pay them yeah. larger advances? How do we help them grow their businesses? To be aligned on that approach has been really important. To me, this was really about our partnership. And we'd be like, huh, all these people telling us to do this, it feels wrong. It all went back to our shared values and our shared idea of the company that we wanted to build. Ethan wrote a few paragraphs about who we are and our philosophy at the beginning. Three years later, we read it and we're like, yep, yep, still good. And so we can go back and say, what are we doing here? What's the larger theme? What is the thing that we're building towards? And that made it a lot easier to navigate these challenging decisions and being able to support each other and talk it through. And it was really easy to execute on that. Ethan Fresh and Ori Zohar are co-founders and co-owners of Burlap and Barrel. Burlap and Barrel sources unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. As a public benefit corporation, their goal is to build new international food supply chains that are equitable, transparent, and traceable by partnering directly with smallholder farmers to source spices that have never been available in the U.S. before, and to help improve the livelihoods of their partner farmers. Ethan and Ori, thank you so much for being on my show. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I first learned about Burlap and Barrel, actually, Ethan, from your father, Michael Frisch. And since then, I've been watching Burlap and Barrel from a distance. And I have to say, I've been so impressed by the marketing, the mission, and the intentional impact you're making on communities and farmers, and I'm sure their families all over the world. And of course, I love the product. My 13-year-old daughter, Aradna, and I have been using these spices actually for a while now, and they're so fresh and they're so different. And honestly, because of your mission and how you source these spices, I feel especially good about using them. And clearly, I'm not the only one who's impressed. Burlap and Barrel has been written up in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Bloomberg, Fast Company, Food and Wine Magazine. I'm sure I'm missing a few here, but you guys have gotten so much great press and exposure. I'd love to talk about your business, your leadership, 
how you guys function as co-owners, but you guys are more than entrepreneurs. You consider yourselves social entrepreneurs. What does that mean to you? And what does that look like? And how is that different maybe than an entrepreneur? Yeah, this is Ethan. Thanks for having us. And thanks for that. The one thing that I'll say about our spices before we talk about other more important things about the business is that that connection between our partner farmers and the quality is not accidental, right? Yes, we are a social enterprise. We consider ourselves to be social entrepreneurs, but anybody who's tasted a really good apple from a local orchard will understand that a farmer who cares more about what they do is going to produce a higher quality, more flavorful product. And that's certainly the case for our spices. So we pay our partner farmers way above the commodity price. We build longstanding, long-term relationships with them, but they're already growing exceptional spices. We just showed up and helped them bring the spices to market. The social enterprise side of it. Ori, do you want to weigh in on that? Sure. This is Ori. I think there's a lot of like different forms of social enterprise and what it means. We are a public benefit corporation and our public benefit is to connect smallholder farmers to high value market. And that's really what we've used the mission for our company. And we're just trying to figure out like everybody votes with their dollars and how they spend. And so do companies and companies have a lot of leverage on how they spend their time, how they spend their money. And our focus is creating these longstanding partnerships with these farmers that are incredible entrepreneurs in their own right. And so how can every dollar that we spend create leverage, support somebody that we think is doing an incredible job, and how can we be the conduit for that? So that's really how we think about the impact around the world. To date, we're nearing almost a million dollars sent over the lifetime to our partner farmers, and it's starting to add up. But at the beginning, it was mostly Ethan going with a backpack (laughs) The farmers around the world (laughs) stuffing his backpack with whatever he could, them kind of laughing at us and saying, yeah, sure, someday. And it's been really cool to watch it go from this kind of hypothetical idea of impact to now becoming one of the largest customers, if not buying all the spices that a handful of our partner farmers produce for the season, which is really, really cool to see. Wow, that is so amazing. You're putting a spotlight on these farmers, like you said, are doing amazing things, but no one would get a taste of what they grow without burlap and barrel being the conduit and the channel to bring those things to market to people that would usually never have the chance to access them. Yeah, exactly. And we're not going to be the ones that are going to decide that they should build a school or decide what form that impact is. Really, the form of our impact is around saying, we're going to pay you significantly above market. We're going to build long-term relationships. They're bringing their neighbors in and they're setting up bus lines and they're setting up nurseries for their spices. They're doing all this kind of community development work by virtue of us being a bigger and better partner to them. That's so cool. Tell us a little bit about Burlap and Barrel and why you decided to pick spices as a place to build a business and to have an impact. Ori and I had an ice cream company about 10 years ago. I had been working in restaurants in New York City. I was a pastry chef. Ori was working in advertising at the time. And eating whenever Ethan was cooking at (laughs) restaurants. That was a priority for me. (laughs) And the restaurant that I'd been working at closed and I wanted to keep making ice cream. And I went to Ori and said, what do you think about this crazy idea? Let's start an activist ice cream cart. He said, sure. So we did. (laughs) Flavors inspired by revolutions and political movements from around the world. And we had a little cart that we scooped our ice cream from and sold at different markets around the city. We were making everything ourselves by hand, essentially, in a rented restaurant kitchen overnight. Wow. And ice cream is really the worst food product you could ever build a business around. The ingredients are expensive. It's very labor intensive. You need all kinds of specialized equipment and it melts. Right. (laughs) So when we started talking about other businesses, we both went off and did our own things for a while. And then when we came back together 
around this idea, one of the things that was most appealing about it was that it, it didn't require a <laughs> It wasn't frozen. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of a shelf-stable product that we didn't have to worry so much about was very appealing. But I think it also came from both of our backgrounds and interest in travel and international cuisines and the connections between culture and cuisine. Spices ultimately become such an indicator of what's happening within a cuisine and all of the cultural influences that have created it as we see it today. And really, we're an overlooked category in food. And we've seen this revolution take place in coffee and tea and chocolate, even around traceability, around flavor, around speciality. There are these differences that people recognize in other foods that they just had not ever really looked at in spices before. There was nobody doing it. So we decided to give it a try. One thing that really is interesting about what you said is that you think about food, there's the basics. And there's certainly unique vegetables or fruits, depending on the region. I feel like what you were saying is spices is what makes a dish unique to that culture. Because if you have meat and potatoes in one country, but you're using this spice or these spices, and you have meat and potatoes in another country, and you're using these spices, it turns out pretty different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Obviously, all ingredients come together to make a dish. And when we're talking about any agricultural product, whether it's a zucchini or turmeric, terroir is going to make a difference on the flavor, the way that it's grown, the place that it's grown, the way that it's handled after it's harvested. All of those things will come together to create the flavor of the finished dish. But I think one of the results of globalization over the last couple hundred years is that there's a lot more diversity of fruits and vegetables at our fingertips. We can pretty easily go and buy things at the supermarket that are associated with a particular country or cuisine, but are now very easily available. And that access makes it easier to cook more broadly, to try out new dishes, new styles, new flavor profiles. And that approach had just not really extended to spices before. That's such a great point because now there's so many more things available to us in the grocery store, but if you don't have the spices to make it unique to whatever it is, Ethiopia or something, then you can't fully realize those ingredients to reflect that dish and that culture. I would even argue that if you're not getting the spices from Ethiopia. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think anybody who has traveled and eaten amazing food in other countries will have had this experience. This is part of the process that led to Ori and I starting the company was traveling and tasting delicious things that you try to recreate or try to find a proxy for when you get home and they just don't taste the same. No. And a lot of that is because the ingredients are different. They're just grown differently, handled differently. The way that the spice industry tends to work is that there are spices that are grown for domestic consumption in countries like India or Turkey or countries that both produce a lot of spices and export a lot of spices. Spices grown for domestic consumption and spices grown for export, and they're often quite different. And the spices grown for export tend to be very high volume. It's really all about quantity, not about flavor. It's all about price, low price. So our theory coming into this was that if we could connect with the farmers who were growing exceptional products, who were doing it differently, who were doing it outside the bounds of the commodity market, and were growing often primarily for a domestic audience, for an audience of their neighbors, essentially, who understood quality in a way that people in the U.S. just hadn't experienced before. If we could set those people up to export, they could grow their businesses, they could make a lot more money, and we could bring in spices that would be really distinct from things that most people in the U.S. had tried. On the other end of it, we were even chatting with chefs who knew where the farmer that raised their cows were specialty growing produce and all that. We'd be like, what is cinnamon? How does black pepper grow? Nobody had the connection even with spices back to plants, back to leaves and bark and fruits and all this and that. And so there was so much knowledge around food in general over the past couple of decades being developed here, but spices were so hard to trace things back to where they came from, who grew them, 
how they grew. And so five years ago, when we were starting to talk about this, you could be intensely knowledgeable about food and still have spices not be a deep expertise and still not know very much about it. And so it was a really good opportunity to extend what people thought about produce and meat and coffee and chocolate, as Ethan was saying, into the spice part of your pantry. And we've seen people soak it up. They love it. We tell them cinnamon is tree bark. And they're like, oh my God, really? (laughs) We tree bark? Why does it taste like that? And it opens this whole conversation into where it came from and how it was grown. And even the person that grew it, it's like thinking that your chicken comes in a saran wrapped little thing in the grocery store and being like, well, that's chicken for you. Right. We're opening that up around spices. And when Ethan and I were working on Gorilla Ice Cream, I kind of walked away from it thinking... I really like working with Ethan. We're very different. We have complementary skill sets. I was just waiting for the next opportunity and for the next idea that we would come together on and be able to bring the band back together because it is so hard to find a business partner. It's so hard to find a co-founder. And to me, it was pretty clear that this was the band that needed to stay together in some way. And it took something like seven years, something like that in between. At least, yeah. For us to come back together to do Burlap and Barrel. And we both matured independently, got better at our different sides of the business, and then came together to do this in a bigger way. And, And it feels really good. But that was my key takeaway from doing the Grill Ice Cream was like, yeah, this is a good thing. And we should find a way to do this more. Yeah, yeah. I do want to emphasize just a couple of things that we were talking about. You talked about cinnamon and bark, which... I kind of knew about, but I didn't know about cinnamon leaves, which is one of the first things I ordered off of Burlap and Barrel because I'm like, cinnamon leaves, I never thought of this, right? So just to emphasize that point. But the other thing that, Ethan, you were saying, which I never thought about it translating to spices. When I went to India for the first time in the early 90s, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to India and there's going to be all these cool clothes and jewelry that I've seen in the US. Now, of course, there was very cool jewelry and clothes in India, but it was not the same. Back to what you were saying around these different countries that produce things for a mass market or maybe for a westernized market is different maybe than what they're growing for themselves. And I just think that's such a great point that with burlap and barrel, you're really getting the authentic spice and you're getting what they would use in their own country. And that's where it brings not only that freshness, but that extra potency potentially, or that extra authenticity. I just think that that was a really interesting point. One of my favorite compliments that we'll get, somebody from Turkey will order a bunch of Turkish spices and write us an email and say, this brought me back to my childhood or the way that I remember my food tasting in Turkey and I haven't been able to get anything like this or wow. Indian American customers tasting some of our spices from India. It's so much more than just the food or the flavor. It's a sense of home. It's a sense of cultural connection. And this really has not been done before. And we can get into why that is. Technology has made it a lot easier when it was truly almost impossible even 15 years ago. But to be able to provide that experience to somebody who misses that sense of home and that connection is really special. You guys really do have different and complementary backgrounds, experiences, and skills. Could you just briefly touch on what you've done and how that relates to maybe what you're doing now? And then I really want to get into your partnership as well. Yeah, I'll start by sort of explaining what Burlap and Barrel does, the various parts of it, and then maybe that'll help each of us talk about how we contribute to that. We manage the entire supply chain from the farmer who grows the turmeric, for example, to the customer, whether it's a home cook or a professional chef who's using it. 
We work with farmers in 15 countries. We set them up to export their own spices, often for the first time. Many of them have never exported at all before, let alone done it themselves rather than through a broker or some other process, which is most often how spices are exported. We import them. We package them here in the U.S., And then we sell them online and we supply a lot of restaurants. We supply many, many home cooks across the country as well. And so that business then breaks down into a lot of constituent parts. There's the sourcing side, which is in my portfolio, working with farmers, setting them up to export, discussing questions around quality and variability season to season and new spices that they might want to grow. There's the operational process of bringing those spices into the U.S., which also falls under my category, international logistics and that super fun regulatory process of importing food into the U.S. And then essentially I hand the product off to Ori when it arrives in the U.S. for the process of packaging it and then putting it on our site for sale. My background is half in restaurant kitchens and half in international development. I was a line cook and a pastry chef. I learned a lot about food. I worked for a pretty famous Indian-American chef named Floyd Cardoz who passed away a little over a year ago at his flagship restaurant called Tabla. So I learned a lot about spices and Indian cooking there and then left kitchens to go to grad school for international development and became an aid worker. So I lived in Afghanistan for a couple of years working for a big NGO managing infrastructure construction projects. We were building schools and roads and bridges throughout northeastern Afghanistan. I worked for Doctors Without Borders doing logistics on the Syrian-Jordanian border So this business is very much a combination of those two sets of experiences for me, my background in food and my background in international development. Wow. I kind of take responsibility overseeing like how we pack the spices, how we fulfill the spices, our e-commerce, and then some of the business operation aspects of it around finance and accounting and all these other parts. And I think that there's two archetypes of entrepreneurs in general. There's the inventor or the subject matter expert which I found very much so in Ethan. And there's a business operator where it helps to build infrastructure and systems and all that stuff around it so we can start doing this in repetition. And so my background is I studied business undergrad. I went to work in the big ad agencies in New York right after college, working 24 hours a day on how to get Exxon Mobil to sell more synthetic lubricant. (laughs) Very specific. But I did that for about six years. And what was really interesting was to learn about how the biggest marketers, how they think about communications and marketing and advertising and and all that. And I got to do global business development for two years, flying to India to pitch Coca-Cola and Finland for Nokia and all that stuff. So I, I really got to cut my teeth like that in the advertising and marketing world. And I was always wanting to do something entrepreneurial. I had a bunch of small projects throughout my life, whether it was turning my jukebox that I got for my 16th birthday into a DJ station and deciding that that would be my business, which still was the most I've ever gotten paid for an hour in my life. <laughs> but always had little things. But then with Ethan saying, hey, let's do this ice cream thing. It was like, perfect. I get to combine food, which in general I love, and turn that into a business. And so we'd grill ice cream. And after that, I was like, I want to find the next startup. And I found a couple of investors that invited me to join their business in Switzerland, which was a mortgage business. I hemmed and I hawed and I said, no. And they said, well, listen, here's another entrepreneur will finance you to start a more transparent mortgage company in the US. So I moved to San Francisco and spent the next four years raising capital. We raised $32 million. We had over 100 employees. We were burning cash every single month, like the classic San Francisco story. And that's four years of me cutting my teeth on figuring out How do you run a company? How do you manage investors? How do you make decisions with limited resources? How do you build teams? Really feeling like I was in the fire for four years straight, figuring all this stuff out, what to do and what not to do also. 
And for me, it ended up being a bit of a cautionary tale. I don't know how companies for decades can lose money <laughs> and then it just not be an issue. And so ultimately, we had a private equity firm that came in and promised us a $40 million term sheet. And they were waiting for us to go bankrupt. And we quickly sold the company. And it was this whole really crazy, tumultuous thing. But in my book, not an experience that I ever wanted to repeat again because it was such a pressure cooker and it was so hard and it was so challenging. And ultimately, some of our investors got some of their money back, but I was out in reconnecting with Ethan. And we were always connecting, shooting ideas back and forth. But when we started aligning around this new business and this new opportunity in Spices, I knew that I wanted to do something that was bootstrapped and not venture backed. I knew that I wanted to do something that could be profitable. Like we would do everything in our power to make sure that we had more money in our bank account at the end of the month and at the beginning of the month, even if it meant not paying ourselves salaries, whatever it took. But it was really about saying, how can we use business for good and create a sustainable long-term business that isn't optimizing for some kind of crazy exit in five years? We just want to build a healthy, happy business that can continue to exist in its own right. And that was a really big priority for me. And if I got to do it in food, even better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's such a great story. And it's very clear that you guys are well suited as partners in this particular business and bring such perfect complementary skill sets. Something to point out is that you guys are not interested in huge investments from the outside. You want to build organically and slowly, meaningfully, exactly what you said, Ori, to build a happy, healthy business. Is that still true? Yeah, very much so. And honestly, we still hear from people saying, we'll invest. You hear so much more in the headlines about the crazy venture back, gigantic companies and founder as hero, creating a new world. And honestly, it's too stressful. It's too much. And we instead have a lot of other companies that are really inspiring to us. The quirky, funny companies that have grown organically have a really deep and interesting culture of their own. Not the least of which is Rancho Gordo, which sells incredible dried heirloom beans, but also equal exchange, also King Arthur flour. There's a bunch of these really interesting food companies that show a different model that just said, we're going to do it in our own way. I'm listening to Let My People Go Surfing Now an Audible by the Patagonia founder. And you just hear a company that is driven by larger goals and creating long-term change. And that is so much more interesting and inspirational for us than the founders that build something just to flip it like three or four years later. I love that. And it really does mirror what you're doing in the work around the communities and the families that you're working with. I have to just say quickly that Floyd Cordoza is from Goa, which is where my husband's from. And we used his cookbook and gave it to our caterers for our wedding and said, here are the recipes that you should be using for dinner. So fond memories of him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His books are great. So you told me a little bit about how you guys split up the work and that was really interesting. But what is it actually like to be co-owners and actually do the work together. What's great about it? What can be challenging? Tell me about how that all works. One of the things that made it easy, especially in the very early days, was that we've been friends for a long time. And starting this business was just sort of a new phase of a longstanding friendship. And we talked earlier about Gorilla Ice Cream, having had that experience of entrepreneurship together meant that we understood in a tangible way how our skill sets and interests were going to complement each other. This is also kind of a tricky question because the business has changed so much in the last year. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. In October 2016, Ori was still wrapping up his previous startup at that point. So I was working on it full time and he was an advisor and kind of part time. We ran the business out of my apartment for the first at least a year. 
my one bedroom apartment in Queens, we had more than a ton, literally more than one ton of spices in my living room. (laughs) We'd get an order from a restaurant for a pound of cinnamon and I'd open up a sack and scoop out a pound, weigh it and put it in the mail or deliver it myself on the subway. So we built the business steadily from there, found a co-packer, a company that would do the packaging for us. So I didn't have to do it myself anymore. Then found a fulfillment center, a company that would store the spices for us and box them up and ship them out. But it was still just the two of us until early 2020 when we made our first part-time hire, somebody to help with customer service. But we hired her not understanding what we were about to enter into. Or you want to take the story from here? More than half of our revenue came in from restaurants. And all of a sudden in March, restaurants are closed, global pandemic. We have no redundancy. So if our warehouse is closed, then the business is effectively closed. We don't have 10 different warehouses. We're like, oh, we'll just ship from a different one. Early stage companies are really fragile. And so we started doing kind of disaster planning. What if we had to close for six months? At what point are we out of money? What if we had to close for a year? We were just having all these conversations on what do we do for the worst case scenario. And we had lost the restaurant business. And so we were looking around and trying to figure out what would happen. And then home cooks started ordering and ordering and ordering. And we went from, oh my God, what if we have to close the business to, oh my God, we're about to run out of spices. Wow. (laughs) And so there was this really crazy shift because grocery stores were largely closed. And even if the ones that were open, most people were not shopping in person. They were focused on getting bread and wheat and meats and toilet paper. And so spices were just a secondary concern. And our core customer, which is somebody who is used to shopping online and probably doesn't have local specialty stores near them. So when they want something good, they buy it, they order it in. That became everybody in America. And so all of a sudden we're there, we're putting spices on airplanes, we're checking with our farmers every day to see what state of what's the lockdown, can they safely operate? Is the airport open? We're packing large sizes, our large food service containers into individual jars. And we were just scrambling through the end of the year to just keep up. Because for every entrepreneur, you know that there is a moment in time where people are paying more attention to you and where behavior is changing. And we wanted to be there and to be like, oh, you're giving us a chance. Well, we don't want to be sold out if you're giving us a chance. And so we did everything in our power to just stay in stock. And that was also the time where our team largely from me and Ethan, a part-time customer support person. So we filled it out. We hired six more part-time contractors. Whoa. In February of this year, we hired our first full-time employee as a director of operations. And all of a sudden, we went from being this little business that mostly made sense to run out of Ethan's apartment (laughs) into something that actually we needed to think about operations. We need to build out a more robust food safety plan. We needed to have a second co-packer, another fulfillment center. So we really accelerated in this unexpected way. And we're still in the midst of that and learning about what it takes to grow. And as a result, mine and Ethan's roles also changed in a pretty meaningful way. We went from being the people that did everything to that being wildly inefficient. We would hand it off to somebody who was an expert at it or who was better than us. That was a really, really big change that just started to happen last March. But really, by the end of 2020, the broad and barrel team and operations and everything, all the systems broke in the process. (laughs) And so we had to rebuild them in a more robust way. And so it was about me even talking a lot and saying, hey, I'm busy. I can't handle this. Are you good at this? We were having a lot of pushing stuff back and forth between each other to figure out what the right home would be for each of these things. You're just ramping up. The pandemic hits. And before the pandemic, it sounds like probably half restaurant, half home cooks. Yeah. And when the pandemic had hit, did sales go down? But then it went back up because home cooks were cooking more at home and wanted access to these spices because they were cooking more at home. In 2020, the business grew 
5x. Wow. It started with March sales going down compared to February because all the restaurants had closed. It went from us being half home cooks to 80 plus percent home cooks. By, I think, May, home cooks had more than made up for the 50% of our revenue that we had lost from restaurants closing. Oh, wow. Everything stopped, essentially. Direct-to-consumer orders stopped. Our restaurant orders definitely stopped in late March and early April as everybody was trying to figure out what was going on and what was going to happen. And we had a a few weeks of an existential crisis, not knowing, was the business going to survive this? Were our customers going to come back? And we didn't know what to do. And then really home cooks came to the rescue through the spring, like Ori said, after they had bought all of their beans and flour and toilet paper and realized (laughs) that they needed something to make those beans taste good. Funnily enough, we saw early spikes in orders for cinnamon and bay leaves because that's what people were buying right out of the gate. Banana bread and stews and beans. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Pandemic staples. That's right. That's really funny. But wow. So it is so interesting that you happen to have that mix of customers and that the swing happened right on time. And then you ended up growing so significantly during a time when lots of business, especially in any business related to food was really crippled. We went through like a startup accelerator program and got so much advice that we disagreed with. Oh, interesting. And maybe it was helpful in the fact that it aligned me and Ethan together against it. What everyone told us was don't source from multiple countries. That's insane. Only focus on one country. And we knew that we needed to have a representative set of spices so that if you came to our website or if you're a chef, We don't just supply you with one thing, but you can come in and buy whatever you need to outfit your pantry, outfit your kitchen with it. Everybody told us, don't sell to restaurants and to home cooks. That's crazy. Each one of those should be its own business. And we're like, we're going to let you finish, but we're going to sell to home cooks, grocery stores, food manufacturers, and home cooks on top of that. So we were two full-time people with four sales channels. And it turns out that that saved us. When the pandemic hit, a lot of companies that primarily sold to grocery stores and grocery stores were like, we're overwhelmed. We don't have time for you. We're going to work with Unilever right now to outfit our store. They ended up really struggling because they were caught flat-footed when demand moved from grocery store into direct-to-consumer. And same thing for us going from restaurant to home cooks. We had another channel. We had another outlet. It's the same product packaged differently. And so that ended up being really important for our business. And that allowed us to catch the upswing. As soon as restaurants went down, we were able to catch the upswing of home cooks shifting in that way. So that was really important for us. And that brought... Ethan and myself together, it's even this idea, they told us to keep raising money, just raise $2 million, hire some developers. We stuck to our guns and decided to stay bootstrapped. And that also forced us to be leaner and much more thoughtful. And when every dollar has to count, you start creating more clever solutions because you can't just solve it by hiring a consultant or by hiring a senior level person to solve it for you. And so all that was really good practice that helped us really define our approach and work also on our values and what's driving the decision making in our company. And that's something that we check in on very regularly so that we're aligned in that way. So do you guys think that you were able to go with your gut and go with your intuition around the advice that you were given in this incubator? Ori, was that your experience working in San Francisco? And or was it also you guys were able to talk to each other? You weren't alone thinking, oh, am I crazy? Well, maybe they're right because there's more than them than there is me. You guys were maybe able to talk yourselves through that and really validate your gut and your intuition with each other. To me, this was really about our partnership. And we'd be like, huh, all these people telling us to do this, 
it feels wrong. It all went back to our shared values and our shared idea of the company we wanted to build. We even look back, I think Ethan wrote a few paragraphs about our company and about us, who we are and what we do and our philosophy for impact all the way at the beginning. Three years later, we read it and we're like, yep, yep, still good. So how it happened and the specific decisions and all that stuff were very different than I think what we could have expected. But the philosophy behind it and the company we wanted to build and how we wanted to build it was exactly the same from what we wrote down at the onset. And that really helps to make challenging decisions a lot more straightforward is when we can go back and say, what are we doing here? What's the larger theme here? What is the thing that we're building towards? And that made it a lot easier to navigate some of these challenging decisions. And we were able to talk it through. It was because of the partnership and us being able to support each other and even talk it through and be like, yep, okay, that's what we're doing. And then it was really easy to execute on that. Yeah. Ethan, what would you add to that? I think we both had come to similar conclusions about the kind of business that we wanted to run, having had very different experiences, but they both got us to the same place or his experience with Silicon Valley and venture-backed startup and especially being burned by this private equity group gave him a fair amount of skepticism about any investor-related conversations. (laughs) Seriously. And my background, both in restaurants, seeing restaurants very poorly managed and ultimately shut down because the owner wasn't running them right. And then in activism and nonprofit work, I was very skeptical of anybody with money trying to come in and tell us how to run a business that, like Ori said, we, from the beginning, had a very clear vision for what we wanted to do. We arrived at that conclusion differently, but similarly. And the Startup Accelerator that we went through was in the early days of Ori having joined full-time. So it was our first chance to be physically in the same place, first of all, or he was living in San Francisco at that point. I was in New York, so he came to New York for that summer, and we sat across the table from each other every day, which we hadn't done in years, and to, in a certain way, give us a common enemy uh, of all of these people (laughs) pushing us to do things the way that they thought they should be done, and it gave us something to push back against and align our own values and systems and long-term goals and approach for the business. So what's been challenging, whether it's topics or situations or conversations that you guys have had to go through and you've been able to overcome as partners through this that you could share? I think also seeing that part of it too is helpful for people to imagine like, okay, there's a lot of great stuff here. And I think the fact that you guys have such commonly held values is so important when it comes to a partnership. What's been challenging? One thing that I think I was a little bit hung up on in early days was that so often you define people's roles based off of a subject matter. Yeah, Ethan, I divide the business in the ways that we talked about, but I have a background in marketing. But the best thing that the business can do is have Ethan talk to journalists about sourcing stories and PR and do that. And he's excellent at it. We don't need to do advertising if the PR is working in that way. I think what Ethan and I found is that we are really good at tasks at different phases. And so early on, Ethan was doing all the customer support. And then when it was getting a little bit too much, I took it over and then I built out a help desk system and emails and roles and assignments and all that, that we could have a handful of customer support people coming into. I'm not as good on the quick fire. I like to take time and sit for an hour and think about a thing. And so then I went back to Ethan and he you know, to run our customer support and manage the increasing volume of customer support requests. And so we've kind of ping-ponged roles and responsibilities between the two of us with, I think, Ethan being really good at the zero to one, creating something that doesn't exist and creating the first instance of it, then I can come in and build a system around it and go a little bit beyond that. And then at times, it'll go back to him or back to me. And so we're constantly having this conversation of where are we busy? Where are we feeling overwhelmed? And at what point should a task be handed from him to me, from me to him? 
and then we give it the next revolution. And that was a new way of thinking about things, less about the subject matter itself and more about the way that we work and the skills that we bring into solving the problems require a different set depending on what phase it's in. I love that. That's so powerful. Not only are you really being fluid and flexible around where the value that each of you adds to a certain topic or process or function or operation and recognizing that at different stages, you guys are offering different pieces or adding different value, no matter what background you already have. But then just that back and forth is great. Ethan, what would you say from your perspective, what's been challenging and how that's been handled? One of the things that helped keep many things not challenging is that we know each other really well and we know ourselves really well. Neither one of us has a lot of ego around the day-to-day tasks of the business. So if I'm struggling with something that I can hand off to Ori that he's going to do better, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what we want to happen for us to have a relationship that allows us to go to each other and say, this is really hard for me. Can you help? Or can we talk this through? Or can you just take it over entirely? It's like any relationship, any (laughs) long-term serious relationship where there are ups and downs and there are certainly challenges. Or we talked about this a little bit, but we work very differently. We think very differently. That has been, honestly, I think the greatest strength of the business beyond the quality of the spices and relations with our partner farmers and anything else. We just, between the two of us, approach questions in such different ways that I think that has allowed the business to grow in the way that it has. But often we disagree. There are skills that we've practiced that have allowed us to talk through some of those disagreements and talk through them more productively. But we get frustrated with each other. We get annoyed at each other. You know, like any relationship, that's what happens. And we've put quite a bit of time and energy and explicit focus into coming up with a conflict resolution process. What do we do when we disagree? What do we do when I do something that pisses Ori off or vice versa? How do we handle that? How do we convey that? If we didn't know, sometimes we know and we do it anyway. Sometimes we don't know. And and it just kind of happens by accident. Having a language and a toolkit to say, this isn't working. How do we resolve it? Or why are we disagreeing? What are our goals for each of us individually in this process? Maybe we're disagreeing about tactics rather than overall strategy and giving ourselves the literal space, but also the emotional relationship space to work through those together and individually. Can you give me a little peek into your toolkit and language in terms of resolving conflict, how you talk about it maybe even before it happens? Can you say more about that? Yeah. So one of the most important, or or at the very least, the thing that we do the most is we give ourselves a scale for how strongly we feel about something. So The rule is that the person who feels more strongly about something gets to make the decision. Interesting. We were discussing some slight changes, a redesign to some of our labels that go on our jars and which one of us feels more strongly. I think it should look like this or he thinks it should look like that. Ultimately, they're very similar. Nobody else is going to (laughs) really notice much of a difference. But being able to say on a scale of one to 10, I'm like a four in terms of how strongly I feel about this. And Ori's like, I'm like an eight. And so Ori then gets to make the decision on it. Yeah, and honestly, if somebody has like a very clear point of view and a clear vision, it's like, this is it and this is why. It's like, oh, cool. I'm grateful that you have spent the time to think through this at this level, that you've developed a strong and clear opinion on it. We have a weekly meeting, Ethan and myself, that has no agenda. I was reading an article by Pete Flint at NFX I was talking about for your co-founder, bring pebbles, not boulders to their desk with the idea of how do we talk about things earlier? How do we just make sure that if something is feels off, feels weird, we don't just sit on it and stew on it. And so one of our solutions for that is say, okay, we have a weekly meeting. We schedule it for 30 minutes. Sometimes we talk for three hours and that's all okay. It's really wonderful. What it does is it kind of creates a safe space 
for both of us to bring whatever we're feeling. You don't have to pull the person into a conversation. You don't have to be like, hey, do you have time to talk? We have a built-in weekly meeting. And the goal of it is to just be like, how's it going? Is anything bothering you? Is anything sitting with you weird? Let's explore it. And I think that lets us open up these issues earlier and in a kind of safe space. And so that's been also really helpful. There's no crazy magic technique. It's just a weekly check-in, but it creates that space where we can disagree and talk through the things that are sitting the heaviest on our minds. I think it's worth pointing out that we started the business by traveling together and by traveling to often challenging, sometimes uncomfortable places, sharing rooms, hotel rooms, or a room in a farmer's house. When we're on the road and and visiting our partner farmers, we're spending literally 24 hours a day together, often within arm's reach the entire time, sometimes even sharing a bed if that's what's available in the place that we wind up staying in. And that just creates a level of comfort with another person that lets you talk about anything and lets you work through problems. We've been in all kinds of uncomfortable situations together, unrelated to the details of the business. And so when there's an uncomfortable situation about the business or when we disagree about something, it's in the context of this bigger relationship that's been through a lot more than what the label on the jar should look like. And that, I think, has really helped build that foundation. Traveling with someone brings out a whole different level of potential conflict or uncomfortableness, like you said. But I really want to highlight a couple of things, Ori, that you were saying. So when you say bring pebbles, not boulders, I think the idea is that you've got this little pebble in your shoe and it's bugging you, but it's like, eh, it's not a big deal. It's not big enough, but it is big enough because you want to talk about it now before it becomes a boulder. And by the way, you guys having these weekly meetings, I think you've set up the context where we are going to have those kinds of conversations. Like what's the pebble in your shoe that's kind of bugging you? Maybe it's bigger, maybe it's littler, but it's something that's on your mind. And this is going to always be the forum you know you have access to, to have those kinds of conversations. Yeah, it's worth saying we're a remote company. We're now both in New York, Ethan in Queens, myself in Brooklyn. For the first few years of the company, I was in San Francisco and Ethan was in New York. And as he was saying, like, those trips were our time to spend two or three weeks, 24 hours together. We got to do that. And we're like, oh, this is actually important. We can be remote, but we need to find time to share space in some way. And even now, now that we're both in New York, we'll spend one or two days a week working out of each other's apartments and to just create space for some of those little conversations to naturally happen. Because when you don't see the person and you don't bring up the little things, you're like, hey, can I get your thoughts on this? Because you're like, oh, do I need to schedule time? How do we create these ways for these small things and for us to chew on ideas and just ping each other all the time and just keep pushing each other to develop our thoughts rather than working alone in our apartments in separate streams, because that's really good opportunity when you're separate for you to start drifting apart. And working a couple of days out of each other has really been helpful to let the magic happen that happens when two people are in the same space and we just end up using each other to develop ideas and to get a totally different perspective as that's how we work, but still towards the same goal and conclusion. Ori got some advice from another startup founder early on that has really stuck with me is to practice disagreements and practice disagreements about the small things so that when a big thing comes along, you're ready and you have a system and a language for doing that. Our business lives in that tension that Ori was describing between his approach and my approach. And when we disagree, it means that we're working on something important. It means that we have arrived at different conclusions with essentially the same information. And why did we arrive at those different conclusions? And tension is not necessarily a negative thing. And in fact, it's been for our business, at least, and for our relationship, our friendship, it's been overall a source of positive energy and it pushes us in the right directions. I think one of the things we're dealing with now 
is that we went from being a very small two-person business and then very quickly grew, as we mentioned earlier, that we have nine people on the team now. Our business grew 5x, and that was a 10x increase in our direct-to-consumer sales. So the business changed fundamentally in the last year, and we went from a business that had to say yes to everything because we just had to go after any opportunity that presented itself, any chance that we got to grow or expand, uh, we had to pursue. And now that's different. Now we have to say no to things. Now we have to be more selective because of the risks involved, because of our time and resources, and because the business has a bigger profile and can have more of a positive, but also more of a negative impact if we make a mistake. That has been a challenging process for me that we're really just beginning to navigate that process of changing my mindset from saying, yes, I'll do anything, anything, I'll figure it out and make it happen to now having to come up with a system for saying no and assessing a new opportunity and making a decision about whether it's one that we want to pursue or one that we don't. Right. It's almost like if you say yes to everything, you're not having to really make decisions. But now that it's like, okay, now I got to be pickier for a bunch of different reasons in a bunch of different areas, that now causes me to have to take energy and time and a mindset to make decisions and make more of them. Yeah, absolutely. And the social dynamics have changed also where we went from being sort of a scrappy startup, like we'll take on any challenge, we'll figure it out. Often people didn't really want to work with us necessarily, or weren't at the very least weren't seeking us out to work with us. We've gotten a lot of press over the last year. We've grown a lot. Our presence has grown. And because of this direct-to-consumer audience that we always had to some extent, but has grown a lot, we have a certain amount of power in this very funny, wonky, small food world that we live in that we just didn't have before. And so we have people coming to us and saying, we want to work with you, which is a brand new experience. <laughs> and sometimes that's great and we want to work with them. And sometimes it's just not a fit. And we see why it might not be a fit, but maybe they don't. And those can be challenging conversations. We've had similar conversations with farmers over the years, farmers who, for whatever reason, weren't going to be a good suppliers to us. Maybe the quality wasn't high enough. Maybe that was a little inconsistent. We've had farmers with food safety concerns that we've had to work through. And so we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of conversations with farmers where we say, like, look, like if you can get to this point or if you can grow something a little different, maybe we would work together, but we can't work together now. But to have those same conversations on our domestic side, to have a chef come along and say, I want to work with you on this. And we have to say, this isn't the right time or we're not set up for that or what you're asking for is outside of our area of expertise. They're a tricky conversation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It seems like there's that theme, right? So practicing having those disagreements or difficult conversations, you guys are probably getting better and better at that, whether it's with yourselves, the farmers, people over here. That's really good. Entrepreneurship is always a process of iterating and improving, right? Nothing is static. The business changes every three months in fundamental ways. And the change over the last year has been accelerated even more. So we have always been in this process of how do I learn to do international shipping and customs paperwork. I was filing our customs paperwork early on. I had no background. I didn't know what I was doing. I was making lots of mistakes, but not having anybody else to do it or not having the money to hire somebody else to do it. You learn how to do it. You get better at it. You move on to the next challenge. And yeah, I hope you're right that this is just <laughs> the next step in that process of learning and improving. You're building on it, right? Like you said, it's the iteration. And in some ways, that's probably part of why you really love doing what you're doing, right? Because being an entrepreneur, it's hard, but what's really fun about it is that you're constantly learning and constantly being challenged, but you're also building on what you've already learned. I think that's exciting. Yeah. And also things turn very quickly from being an asset to a liability, right? Early days, me doing our accounting was fine. It saved us money. 
we got to keep the cash in the business. We could use it to buy spices. And then at some point, me doing our accounting becomes a liability where it's like, wait a second, we need to do this in a more sophisticated way. And then how do we quickly identify when it's time to hand it over to an expert or to get more support on it? It can lead you to lose your footing. We're like, no, this is what I do. And it's like, no, 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 we don't do anything. We keep moving. We keep figuring out where the fire is burning the hottest and keep building it. But we can never rest on our laurels. It was very easy to figure out what the company culture was when it's just me and Ethan sitting across from each other at a table. But now we're like, okay, we have now people working with us. And how do we do check-ins? How do we set priorities? How do we motivate? How do we this? How hands-on or hands-off are we in our management style? That's also a new challenge that we're figuring out how to navigate that we don't know yet, but it's the first time that we've had employees. And so time to figure that out too. I'm curious for each one of you, when you look back over your life and your career, I'd love to hear about if there are important learning moments or lessons that you had, maybe it was even in your childhood, earlier in your career, that help you in times of difficulty, that have stayed with you as you navigate all of this. One for me is going through that whole startup experience and seeing what it was like. There's always this like shiny object of what if we could just raise $2 million? Wouldn't that solve all of our problems? And then seeing what that was like on the other end and how that worked and pressure to grow and pressure to sell and all that. And then the other one is just a fun memory with Ethan. He was working when he was working at the pastry shop at that restaurant. I was sitting at the bar one night and just drinking and kind of waiting for him to get off his shift. And then at some point he's like, hey, come check this out. And he dragged me down into the kitchen where they threw a T-bone steak on the broiler. And we just ripped this barely cooked steak apart with our hands. And I was like, this is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) So I really like the context. I like what we're doing. I like the alignment of business with social impact. So even when things are tough, it's really cool to now be able to look back and think about that day and look at what we've done and just look at some of the numbers of how much money we've been able to push so far. And we're just getting started. So that always keeps me optimistic, even when things are challenging. I love that. Ethan, what about you? What are some ways you grew up, something that happened in your career? What are some key lessons or or moments? Yeah. On both sides of my family, there have been a lot of entrepreneurs. My mother owned a couple of toy stores for most of my childhood. So I grew up literally in her businesses, working, hanging out after school, helping stock shelves and price toys and going to trade shows with her as a 10-year-old. I had this very early and very deep introduction to entrepreneurship. And then on top of that, my grandmother owned a hardware store and my grandfather was an industrial designer and had his own firm. So I had these amazing role models and still have in my life amazing role models for entrepreneurship, for building a business. But then the other side of it, and this has been a theme throughout my career, whether it was working in restaurants or in international development, there are a lot of people who go through a lot of really hard things in their day-to-day lives. And we are really lucky that we get to live a life that we design. We get to decide what we do every morning. We get to decide how much money we pay ourselves. We get to make decisions for ourselves that most people in the world never get to make and really don't have much hope of getting to make. I guess in a backwards way, that always reminds me that it doesn't really matter that much. The fact that we get to do this is already such a privilege, such a treat, that if the business had to close tomorrow, if the business closed a year ago, we are fine, we are healthy, we are in positions to make decisions about our lives, and the business doesn't define that. The business is an outcome of that, but not definitive. And if tomorrow it suddenly became illegal to import all spices into the U.S., Ori and I would sit down and try something else, and we'd have a lot of fun doing that too. So being able to have that perspective on our business and the context and and how it applies across the decision-making that happens in our lives individually and collectively has been helpful. Yeah. There's sort of that sense of freedom and abundance that you've just described that is really 
powerful and exciting. And it sounds like that keeps you both grounded and moving forward too. Yeah. And a sense of agency when I'm like, man, this is a rough day. Is it because I'm a bad boss to myself or is it because I'm a bad employee to myself? (laughs) (laughs) Who's in charge here? Who is responsible for my unhappiness? And it's always me. (laughs) (laughs) Employee, boss, it's always you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I've asked the questions I want to ask. Is there anything that I should have asked that I haven't or anything else that you guys want to add that you think would be fun or helpful for people to hear? One thing that comes up a fair amount, and especially when we're talking about food companies and founders, and I guess this is true in all kinds of startups where the founder comes in with a certain expertise that's relevant, it's very easy for the subject matter expert to be the face of the business or to make decisions. But as a business grows, it gets bigger and more complicated. I learned very quickly, but I think a lot of founders struggle to learn this lesson, is that most of the things that happen in the business on a day-to-day basis are not my area of expertise. And I can talk to you for hours about different species of cinnamon and how they grow and how they taste different and how they're harvested differently. But day-to-day, none of that really matters a whole lot. So this role that Ori plays, the business expert, in addition to having a subject matter expert, having a business expert is in many cases more important and I think often doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, but it's more than credit. It doesn't get enough. Help me out here. I felt this way also in the past where I'm like, oh, I'm developing a set of business expertise. I need to come with some kind of crazy idea and then that will be in my business. And I think there are a lot of other people that know how to run a business or understand whether it's finance, accounting, marketing, legit, whatever it is. And they're like, I'm not cut out to be an entrepreneur. And it's like, wait a second. There's so many people on the other end of it that are these incredible subject matter experts that are so good at doing that and can create magic in that way, but need a lot of help with the other side of the coin of building out the business side of it and turning it from a thing that they do into a thing that now is happening in employees and it is able to go through a growth mode or even a scale mode. And so I really appreciate that in mine and Ethan's partnership because I was sitting around being like, what's the next business, Ethan? <laughs> what's the subject matter that you're going to bring to this that I, we can partner on? But I do think that I've heard from a lot of frustrated people that have the business operational expertise saying, I'm not going to be an entrepreneur. And I think that that is underrepresented in the entrepreneurial community and often undervalued what those people can bring to the table. So Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up, Ethan. I think this hopefully gives an idea to the people that are sitting there feeling that way to be like, go for it. Maybe you just spend a lot of your time on figuring out who your business partner is, because I would have never been a great solo entrepreneur. I knew that a requirement for me to be an entrepreneur was to find the right subject matter expert partner. And so when that happened in 2010 with our funny ice cream business, I was like, cool, I'm going to hold on to this and we're going to see where we can grow together. That's so amazing. You guys are really lucky. It's probably not just luck. You guys are putting a lot of work into your relationship, a lot of work. To have this, I think, is really special. And it's not something that everyone can find. Yeah. And a lot of entrepreneurs don't have a partner, but they have an idea and they have a business already running. And it's like, well, you can't sit around and wait, keep building it. And then you'll be able to figure it out. But we were able to have this kind of relationship established. And my last startup, I started with a co-founder that we ended up having a different set of values. And we didn't know each other very well when we started the company. And learning whether we work together or not as the business is running is a much more challenging and costly exercise than to already have a relationship in place with somebody that you trust and to build from there. I think it is, like you said, a combination of getting lucky and putting a lot of work into it. I think there's one other detail around shared goals for the business. And as we talked about earlier, we're not looking to sell the brand, but we do want to grow 
aggressively and we both are pushing very hard to make that growth happen and to make it stick. And having that alignment has been really important because if one of us wanted to move more slowly or wanted to just build a different style of business, we would have butted heads a lot more and I'm sure we would have worked through it. But the fact that we were on the same page from the beginning about, yes, we want to do this ourselves and we want to do it without investors and we want to do it in our own way, but we want to go hard. We just want to build a big business, a business that has impact, that has influence, that sets a, a target for other businesses to try to achieve. So we think about every single day is how do we make this work more? Yeah. Make it work better for everybody. How do we continue to pay our partner farmers more? How do we pay them yeah. larger advances? How do we help them grow their businesses? How do we build an engine that does that, but also grows the scale of our business and reaches more home cooks and moves higher volumes and cuts costs when we can without hurting anybody or without hurting the fundamentals of the business. So to be aligned on that approach has been really important. That's like a real nuance there, right? Because it's like, we want to grow, but we want to grow in a certain kind of way. <laughs> it's not like we're against growth just because we don't want to get investors and get a bunch of money all at once. We want organic, healthy growth, but we're pushing. We're still growing. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things when we talk about being lucky in finding each other and having this partnership, I think that very specific overlap, we want to grow fast, but we want to grow without anybody else helping us or without anybody else's money. That overlap is very specific and fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. This has been so much fun. I am really excited to have gotten to know you. I love the work that you're doing. I want to come work for you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go travel to some of these places you're going to. I'm so excited for you guys and what you're doing and the work that you're doing and the product. I think this is great. So thank you so much for sharing a little bit about the two of you, your views on leadership, your views on growth. I think that this is really some great work and a great conversation for people to hear. And I'm excited about where you're going. Thanks. It was great to talk to you. And this is a side of the business we don't get to talk about that often. Yeah. It's fun to go through it, especially with somebody with your expertise and qualifications to guide the conversation. Yeah. No, it's really been fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Juanita Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also, reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much. <laughs>